You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The New York Historical Society produces For the Ages, a history podcast. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of subjects, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. Enter the world of special operations with Admiral William H. McRaven and learn about his career in the Navy SEALs and his part in the capture of Saddam Hussein. The new book by Kermit Roosevelt III, The Nation That Never Was, reconstructs the common story we tell about America, that our fundamental values as a country were stated in the Declaration of Independence, fought for in the Revolution, and made law in the Constitution. You'll hear Mr. Roosevelt argue for a reinterpretation of this story. And as Americans learned in recent years, the peaceful transfer of power from one U.S. president to another is the most delicate and hazardous period in the entire political cycle. Listen to David Marchek discuss the history, complexity, and current best practices associated with this most vital of democratic institutions. That's For the Ages, a history podcast, available on Apple and Spotify. On Metropolitan Avenue in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, sits a most unusual storefront, a cabinet of curiosities filled not with natural wonders, but strange and marvelous man-made objects. This is the City Reliquary, containing the passions of New York collectors, accumulations of items that by themselves might go unnoticed, but united on crowded shelves and in glass displays, arranged in a most bewildering fashion. These New York treasures evoke the magic of nostalgia, from old seltzer bottles to the countless duplications of the Statue of Liberty. And it was here, on one dark Wednesday evening, that I met up with cultural historian Kyle Supley and was introduced to the most colorful cabinet of all, the souvenirs of two strange and special events in New York history, rendered in lights, in fabric, in tin and steel, and in glorious molded plastic. There was so much machine-age things happening already. I mean, throughout the 1930s, you did have toasters that looked like they were locomotives that would fly off your table. And there was, you know, so the clean-lined edge and the need for speed. But this fear really looked like it landed here and was ready to take off and whirl you into its, like, clean-edged 
modernist designs. Today on the show, you'll be introduced to those silly, wonderful things that captured two moments in American history when the borough of Queens was the center of the world. The Bowery Boys episode 402, Treasures from the World's Fair. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young, solo this week, and with a very unique show about stuff, trinkets, knickknacks, aka souvenirs, the millions and millions of treasures which people have taken home with them to evoke their experiences of visiting a significant place, in our case today, of course, New York City. Keychains and refrigerator magnets, t-shirts, spoons, stamps, beanie babies, bobbleheads, uh, these little items that tourists bring home with them, often as gifts, as a proof of their journey to New York. Most New Yorkers even have souvenirs, if not of the city itself, of other great places. For instance, I still use my Eiffel Tower keychain. It does evoke strong fond memories of the Eiffel Tower's gift shop. Now, the more rarefied the experience, the more valuable and interesting the souvenir. And back in the days before photography, video, and the internet, most every place fell into this category. People have been collecting souvenirs since ancient times. America's founding fathers, for instance, loved their little bits of wood and stone from renowned places that they visited. Later on, the homes of those very men would become America's first tourist attractions. A proper souvenir industry was innovated in the mid-19th century during the age of industrialization, not only to monetize a burgeoning tourist trade, but to protect the historic sites themselves. You see, people had a nasty habit of chipping off a piece of Plymouth Rock, for instance, or clipping the curtains at the White House. The Washington Post once declared, quote, The business of gathering souvenirs has become a national mania before whose fury many of the great monuments of the earth are fast melting away. The tide shifted towards mass-produced souvenirs about 130 years ago appropriately at an event that was itself ephemeral and quite unbelievable. An event which demanded the creation of take-home objects because it would have been otherwise impossible to describe. That's the World's Columbian Exposition, the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Stretching across 690 acres along the coast of Lake Michigan, the Chicago World's Fair imagined a place greater than the ancient cities of Europe. 200 sumptuous pavilions painted white, containing towering exhibitions of American art, science, and industry. The country's greatest architects worked to create a magnificent spectacle, which borrowed heavily from the past, and most of the pavilions were designed in the rising Beaux-Arts style, reflecting the decorative splendor of Europe. Even its amusements borrowed from the glamour of older civilizations, from the recreated Venetian Canal to the royalty-inspired fountains and monuments. Yet the fair was also a celebration of American prosperity, with new inventions and expanded technologies perfected in the United States, from the awe of triumphant electric light 
to the very first Ferris wheel upon the Midway Plaisance. The fair received 28 million visitors in its first six months, most arriving by train from all across the country and even the world. Looking back today, this was one of the most important cultural events in American history and a preview of 20th century greatness. It was a celebration of American industry, and who wouldn't want to take some of this home? There had been other world's fairs and even souvenirs at those fairs, namely the Paris World's Exposition of 1889, where the Eiffel Tower made its debut, as did Eiffel Tower trinkets. The Chicago Fair organizers took great inspiration from the mountains of souvenirs from France, including the invention of the very first American souvenir postcard. There were also pin cushions, plates, brooches, razors, cigar cutters, matchboxes, magical stereopticons, really anything you can think of. And there were also spoons. According to author Rolf Potts, while souvenir spoons had become a minor trend in the United States, borrowing from European customs, quote, those early successes were catalyzed by the spoon trade at the Chicago World's Fair. By the end of the decade, souvenir teaspoons had become a standard fixture of gift shops worldwide. Now, why do World's Fairs lend themselves so perfectly to the souvenir trade? Well, it's because the key idea here with these fairs are their ephemeral natures. Most pavilions were meant to be dismantled immediately, and then the campuses mostly turned into public parks. In Chicago, in fact, the building housing the Museum of Science and Industry today is one of the only structures left standing from this massive historic fair. So as charming as a souvenir is from the Brooklyn Bridge, or the Eiffel Tower, or the Coliseum, well, those landmarks still exist today in you know, almost the same form as your little trinket. The same can be said of the Statue of Liberty, although I guess if you got an early one, she'd still be copper and not green. But World's Fairs, on the other hand, are fleeting, dreamlike experiences. They dominate the economies of an urban area for a few years and then disappear becoming phantom cities of the past. New York City has had a few world's fairs over the years, including America's first fair. The 1853 exhibition of the industry of all nations was modeled after London's 1851 Great Exhibition, down to its massive glass-domed pavilion known as the Crystal Palace, located on the spot of today's Bryant Park. Then there was the Bronx International Exposition of Science, Arts, and Industries, developed along the Bronx River just south of the Bronx Zoo on the former estate of William Waldorf Astor. Unfortunately, they chose the year 1917 to hold this particular World's Fair, delayed a year then due to that war, and then without official sanctions, when it did open in 1918, only one country, Brazil, actually participated, most other countries, including the United States, being occupied by more serious matters at this time, and the fair eventually devolved into an amusement park known as Starlight Park. Today in the Bronx, there's a small park with that name, 
but most of the former fairgrounds were wiped away with the construction of the Cross Bronx Expressway, conceived by city planner and parks commissioner Robert Moses. That's an interesting detail because New York's best-known World's Fairs came into being precisely because of Moses. Now, his views didn't exactly align with the often utopian viewpoints of prior World's Fairs. Moses, as many of you know, was pragmatic. He wanted to build a park in the borough of Queens and create an attraction that was less tawdry and commonplace than the delights of Coney Island and other amusement districts. Today, of course, Flushing Meadows Corona Park is home to a number of recreational activities, from City Field, the home of the Mets, and the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, to the Queen's Zoo and the New York Hall of Science. But the park will forever be known as the location of two very extraordinary and even somewhat strange World's Fairs. Dawn of a new day. The slogan for the 1939 World's Fair was building the world of tomorrow with the tools of today. And within its dozens of pavilions, visitors could witness several versions of the future, as presented by several American corporations desperate to energize the country after the Great Depression. Perhaps the most spectacular attraction was General Motors' Futurama, a ride which tied together the fate of the United States to the automobile. Sound the brass, roll the drum. To the world of tomorrow we come. See the sun through the gray. It's the dawn of a new day. Here we come, young and old. But visitors could take in a host of different inventions, which would change their lives, most notably at the RCA Pavilion, the television set. At the center of all of this, of this massive fair, were two monumental structures, the 610-foot-tall Trilon and the Parisphere, a gigantic white sphere, 180 feet in diameter. These would be the inescapable symbols of the 1939 fair. 58 nations and 33 American states also took part, presenting works of art and science in extraordinary and often abstractly designed pavilions. But as the year was 1939, the fair could only distract its participants with images of a hopeful future for only a short time before the realities of World War II set in. By the following year, several of the national pavilions had closed. And then the fair closed on October 27, 1940. According to the Times, quote, one of the biggest, costliest, most ambitious undertakings ever attempted in the history of international expositions. For more information on the 1939-1940 World's Fair, we have an entire show full of crazy details. That's episode 288. Now, 25 years after the opening of that first World's Fair at Flushing Meadows, another one opened, and a more idiosyncratic one at that. Yes, part of the fun of the World's Fair is the Subway Special that takes you there. 
Transit Authority has 430 spanking new picture window cars for the elevated ride to the World's Fair. Express trains start at Times Square and Grand Central, and you're safely at the fair in less than 20 minutes. Take it easy. Take the subway. Yes, part of the fun of the World's Fair is the subway special that takes you there. Where the 1939 fair saw Robert Moses on the rise as New York's influential power broker, shaping the city to his designs, the 1964 fair would represent the beginning of his fall. Its theme was peace through understanding, a somewhat guileless slogan for America in the mid-1960s, but for Moses, the theme was more likely peace through making money. The first fair had been a financial failure, and one that Moses did not want to repeat. It was actually unsanctioned by the official fair bureau, although dozens of countries and even 24 American states participated. And at the center of this fair, a new symbol, a massive globe, the 140-foot-tall Unisphere. One can truly describe this fair as space age, both in theme and design, with corporations latching an optimistic future onto their particular products. GM brought back Futurama, which became the most popular attraction at the fair. Over 26 million people viewed a transportation future, which included aquacopters, self-propelled homes, and factories on wheels zipping past deforested landscapes. The fair ended in 1965 less charitably than the last one and a much bigger financial failure than the 1939 fair. The park closed on October 17, 1965. According to the New York Times, the last words fairgoers heard as they left was the voice of Robert Moses over the loudspeaker. Quote, We now commence here a new park, I have seen Flushing Meadows rise from ash dump to glory, and after this second fair, we shall inaugurate what I am sure will eventually be the city's finest park. Children cried as they left the pavilion through the main exit, for they knew the fair was over and that there would be no returning. One of the weeping children was a freckled-faced, red-haired girl of about six. Her mother said, There'll be another fair someday. When I was a little girl, I thought that there would never be a chance for me to see a fair again, and I cried. But there'll be another one, dear. You'll see. Of course, there wasn't another World's Fair in New York. Now, we'd still have them in the world today. In fact, the next fair is in Osaka, Japan in 2025, so book your tickets today. But there hasn't been another fair in the United States since the New Orleans World's Fair of 1984. Because of this, there is something uniquely nostalgic about World's Fair memorabilia. And in particular, a fascination with collectibles from these two New York World's Fairs, which both professed to illustrate possible futures. These fairs demonstrated particular design aesthetics that have become more popular in recent years. Mid-century modern design that is sleek, creative, occasionally sophisticated, and often very kitschy. To imagine visiting the fair today requires visiting one of these extraordinary collections of memorabilia. And fortunately, New York has one of these. 
The City Reliquary first opened in 2002, when its founder, Dave Herman, began displaying unusual artifacts in the window of his first-floor apartment. In 2006, he moved this strange and captivating display to a small museum at 370 Metropolitan Avenue in Williamsburg. The reliquary celebrates the more unusual artifacts of New York City life, many of them actually quite commonplace, or were back in the day. The museum is more like a really a collection of collections, owned by many New Yorkers. It has the allure of a dime museum and the magnificence of the world's greatest flea market. We'll visit the city reliquary and sit down with collector and cultural historian Kyle Supley after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, I call Kyle Supley the king of the World's Fair. He's a design and culture historian and preservationist who celebrates mid-century American aesthetic in his work and personal style. He's also a regular DJ at the historic gay bar Julius in the West Village, which was just made an official New York City landmark. But on this particular night, I wasn't meeting Kyle in the West Village, but within the intriguing corridors of the city reliquary. We sat surrounded by the ephemera of New York's past, a stream of colorful seltzer bottles, and a wall of Jackie Robinson's. So I now find myself in what I would say is Brooklyn's cabinet of curiosities, a place called the City Reliquary. And I am sitting with a man who could be perhaps a human version of the Cabinet of Curiosities, a man self-described as the Thing King, the Prince of Kitsch himself, Kyle Supley. Kyle, welcome to the well, welcome to the show, but welcome to the City Reliquary. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an honor. And it's so great to be back in the City Reliquary. You know, I used to live just down a few blocks from here. 
I love to try to get here as much as I can in such a special space. Well, let's let's describe this place a little bit before we proceed, because there is something about this that figures into our story today. Yeah. So, you know, I first discovered this when I, I was living over here at Lorimer Street and was walking by one day and there's a small storefront and then there was two windows in the front and there was a display, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure it was the display of flashlight. It was a flashlight collection of all antiques. First, I got excited thinking it was an antique store, as I always do. (laughs) And then upon further inspection, I was like, oh, wait, this is a community museum called the City Reliquary. It's pretty great because it celebrates people who collect things about New York City or people that live in New York and collect other things, which is pretty great. They had a bunt pan, uh, like a copper bunt pan collection one time in the windows. That was great. But I spoke to them and they were very sweet and they were... Well, we were all a bit younger then. This was probably 2005. Mm-hmm. But I, I really liked that it was run by these like younger, interesting Brooklynites. And I told them how I have a collection of World's Fair memorabilia. But they said, hey, we'd love to do a show in the window if you'd like to. It was near the holidays. And so that was one window. And I think they needed another display in the other. So I said, hey, I also collect vintage Christmas memorabilia. Would you like me to do <laughs> that as well? And so I mean, I collect many, many things, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, in the back room currently is the Wonder Woman exhibit. They've had many rotating different shows, including like the Miss Subways show, Mm -hmm. which was great. There's a backyard where they have outdoor events in the summer. There's a few neon signs that I kind of helped save and tried from the city before Mm -hmm. they got trashed and and brought here. Well, let's step back and I need to ask like how you got interested in collecting World's Fair memorabilia because I assume you you were you didn't exist during (laughs) the 39 or the 64 World's Fair. Alas. I, you know, I used to go to the fair, you know, in upstate New York where I'm from. I'm from outside Schenectady. But I didn't know about the World's Fair until 1989. Mm -hmm. I was nine years old. And there was a collector's magazine my parents would get. My parents are very much into history and and antiquing and, and such. So the apple doesn't fall far. But uh, the cover of the magazine showed the Perisphere and Trilon, which was the theme center of the fair. Mm-hmm. And it said New York World's Fair. And it was very Art Deco and very futurist looking. And like most children, I was very into Art Deco already at the time. <laughs> and so I saw, you know. <laughs> like, like any child like with a- their Legos or their Fisher-Price people, <laughs> they usually tend to build Art Deco yeah. buildings. Anyway, yeah. yes. Yeah, I was collecting like Art Deco toasters <laughs> and, and the like. And so I read the article about this fair that had happened in New York City. And my young mind, I was like, oh, wow, it must still be there in the city somewhere. I had always wanted to get to New York City anyway. I was obsessed with the Empire State Building and the Statue of Liberty Mm -hmm. as a little kid. So I wanted to get there. It was one of those things was just far enough away living in upstate that you couldn't really go easily. So it was, you know, had a mystical quality, the city itself. Now, my parents would bring me around antiquing all over upstate and being that it was still New York State, there was a lot of World's Fair memorabilia still sprinkled Mm -hmm. about. And I would see that great shape of the pointy trilon and the big perisphere and these bright colors and i kept seeing it over and over i'd see pins i'd see salt and pepper shakers at these antique stores and so it was something i really became entranced by and uh started collecting as much as i could of items and learning about it and trying to find videos i actually still have a vhs tape that i think my mother bought for me somewhere Mm -hmm. there wasn't really ebay or the internet i don't know where she got it but uh (laughs) it was so great it was hard work i'm sure however she got it exactly (laughs) but i mean i had already been collecting my like i said my family instilled it in me already i was collecting clocks from when i was a even younger than that, like six or seven years old. So the World's Fair kind of latched right in, and it was New York-based, it was Art Deco, and far enough away that it had that mystique. So that's kind of how that collection began. But a, a fun other piece is, and we can actually see it from here, 
in the little case of items that I have at the City Reliquary on permanent display, very exciting, is a little metal sign that says World's Fair Selection Chicago 33 and 34. That's mm-hmm. another World's Fair yeah. Century of Progress. And then said New York 1939 and 1940. You can see the 1940s a little bit larger in font because that's what that year that the sign was but it's this little piece of a root beer advertisement and (laughs) what that is is on the other side of that is a piece of wood with a chewed hole on the back of it it was my great-grandfather's chicken coop door (laughs) on the chicken coop at my great-grandma's house that door was like there and i was exploring to find other antiques and i saw the little word that said world's fair on the sign and so i asked if i could keep it and that was one of the first world's fair items it must have been 1989 or so and and here it is still with us now before we dive into souvenirs and all the various items that came from the world's fair and populated all the flea markets and garage sales that were you and your parents went to let's break down the two fairs because today we're going to talk principally about just new york city fairs which took place at the flushing meadows corona park and so the first one is the 1939-1940 World's Fair. The second is 1964-65. So what's interesting is that 25 years apart. So if we were to have a fair today, we would be looking back at another fair in 1997. <laughs> That's terrifying. feel old. But that is sort of the stretch of time. But so much history obviously happens. And so much, so many momentous events happen between 1939 and 1964. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the aesthetic of the fair of 1939. The theme of this fair was the world of tomorrow. So what are some of the motivations behind that fair? And how does that play out in some of the design, the architectural motivations of the whole fair. So there was so much technology at the time. It's funny you say that about 1997. So much change style-wise and technology-wise between 3940 and 6465. It was Mm -hmm. like an explosion of the mid-century things that I really love to collect anyway. It's funny, when I was a kid, I was kind of a snob, and I loved the 3940 fair for its Art Deco nature. I thought 64 and 65 was far too modern. <laughs> At the time, I was like, oh, that's tawdry in 60s and whatever. Um, as I've aged and gone along, I've noticed how, you know, it is very different, but still spectacular and very Jetsons-like, which we'll talk about the different type of styles. But we wanted to create something exciting and to teach people something. Because at the time, the, the only way to really learn about technology was in magazines, popular science, mechanics, mm-hmm. etc., or on the radio, possibly in newsreels, etc. But this was a chance to really bring everyone together and show them firsthand these processes and technologies and to show you where your milk really came from and how you didn't have to sit there with a bucket and do it. There'd be a machine that could do it. And that was a a big impetus for the fair. As they got closer to the date of starting the fair, they said, well, we need to come up with kind of a reason. They were looking at the different dates of when when we really open. And (laughs) and they looked and they saw that, oh, the inauguration of George Washington, this would be around the 150th anniversary of that. Let's use that date, which I think is always kind of funny because I feel like they kind of shoehorned that in. They're like, well, "Well, it it has nothing to do with the world tomorrow i suppose you could be like george washington represented the future it is funny though because if you look at the postcards and some photos of the world's fair they made a humongous statue of george washington and he's turned looking at the parisphere in trilon which the parisphere was at this humongous 200 foot wide circle and then the trilon was a 700 foot tall trilon because it's three sides versus a pylon as we most think of but that was to resemble the world which was the Parisphere, of tomorrow. And the Trilon looking up into outer space into the future was to stand for tomorrow. 
So the, there's this official pamphlet, I, I like this quote here, it says, The eyes of the fair are on the future, not in the sense of peering toward the unknown, nor attempting to foretell the events of tomorrow and the shape of things to come, but in the sense of presenting a new and clearer view of today in preparation for tomorrow, a view of the forces and ideas that prevail, as well as the machines. To its visitors, the fair will say, Here are the materials, ideas, and forces at work in our world. These are the tools with which the world of tomorrow must be made. They are all interesting, and much effort has been expended to lay them before you in an interesting way. Familiarity with today is the best preparation for the future. Welcome to the New York World's Fair. And it's just, it was, there was so much machine-age things happening already. I mean, throughout the 1930s, you did have toasters that looked like they were locomotives that would fly <laughs> off your table. And there was, you know, so the clean-lined edge and the need for speed. Vehicles, you know, were obviously on the way up, and mm-hmm. everybody was excited by that. But this fair really looked like it landed here and was ready to take off and whirl you into its, like, clean-edged modernist designs. Well, let's focus into the design even more fully because there were dozens of pavilions. And of course, there was a sort of overall aesthetic that was sort of being dictated as well. How would you describe the overall like visual effect just from in terms of architecture? The whole space, really, everything was was dictated to follow a look. They They hired every great architect and designer they could find. And everybody wanted to be there because it was an honor to design mm-hmm. for this. Some of the biggest manufacturing uh, companies at the time from you know DuPont, General Electric, and again, this is talking 3940, we can talk about 6465, where a lot of people actually returned back. You know, the look, again, was something you'd never really seen before. It wasn't your typical building with regular columns in front of it. This was to push the boundaries and limits of what architecture could be. Everything was really planned. And not only that, but the Perisphere and Trilum was the only thing allowed to be painted pure white. You basically started at the um, hmm. theme centers, and you kind of worked your way out as spokes. It almost looks like a baseball diamond, if you look on a map, um, which is still with us today. The paths are very much the same. Mm-hmm. But another cool factoid um, that I learned was as you walked away from the Paris Rune Trial and in pure white, each avenue that splayed out was a different color of the rainbow, starting with the lightest color and lightest tones, getting darker as you worked your way all the way to the edge of the fair on a big curved street called Rainbow Avenue. <laughs> because at night, as you walked along, all the colors of the light, you would walk through violet, indigo, blue, and green, yellow, orange, and red. Every, everything was planned. I mean, every fountain, from lighting, like it was the first time that fluorescent tube lighting was used really in public, mm-hmm. which the place was awash in this cool white glow at night, which had to be really fabulous. And, you know, neon was very popular and already kind of on its descend a little bit. People were like, oh, mm-hmm. neon's a little tawdry. You got a lot of liquor signs that say that. <laughs> so you could use neon if you were a designer, but it had to be indirect. It had to be hidden. So that even gave it a really beautiful mystical oh, wow. What were some of the more popular pavilions and exhibitions of the 39 World's Fair? Well, yeah, I mean, if you see the fairgrounds today, you, it's surprising how much open space there is. There's often mm-hmm. a lot of soccer games and barbecues going on. But you have to realize, like, almost every inch was packed full of buildings. And often they would be five stories or taller of these different towers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were manufacturers that people either were starting to learn the names of in 1939 and 40, but that are still with us today, many of them, from Westinghouse that had the famous time capsule to be opened in 5,000 years, which is still there. I love that, (laughs) that in Flushing, Queens, off of the uh, Grand Central Parkway is a time capsule. That humans will open in... 
about in the 5, year 6939. Okay, sure. I'm sure that'll happen. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was the General Motors had Futurama, designed by Norman Bell Geddes. That was very, very popular. They had the RCA building that showed television for the first time. Oh, right. I mean, that. Mm-hmm. Well, where would we be today? If that hadn't happened, I mean, people for the first time got to see their family members in one room through a camera to, into the other room. And it really was very <laughs> l- uh, life-changing for them. Even the televisions themselves, they made clear acrylic versions of the TVs. So people didn't think there was some sort of like magic going on or like that these little people were inside of it somehow. <laughs> um, but I just love that. I mean, Borden's was there. Elsie um, the Cow. Elsie the yes. Cow, which was one of the most popular uh, exhibits there. I mean, you had uh, Wonder Bread. You could see how bread was made, how exciting and thrilling. <laughs> That kind um, of bread, wonder yeah, bread. Exactly. <laughs> you had the famous parachute jump from Lifesavers Candies, which was moved after the fair out to Coney Island and is still there today. Now let's compare it to the 1964 fair. Okay, 25 years later, same place yes. out here in Queens. Robert Mo- Moses still involved, but sort of at the end of his career here. Yeah. And what were some of the major draws of the 1964 fair? Yeah, so there was really great things to see, including the uh, international business machinery, of course, IBM, mm-hmm. and the um, Eroserinin-designed egg, and it was really fantastic. You could get out of the sunlight under the shade of green and blue plexiglass canopy of trees, <laughs> and you could uh, <laughs> wow. stand under there as you waited to then get on the um, stadium seating. Once it was uh, filled up at a certain time, they pushed a button and the whole thing, the whole seating area, slowly went up into the egg that closed underneath you. And then a a guy came up on a platform through the floor. It was supposed to be really amazing. Again, I wasn't there, but I've heard a lot of stories. Mm -hmm. But once you were inside, there was like a 360 uh, film projected throughout the egg showing a day in New York City. Another one was like a dinner table with all food along it. And you can actually see these, some of these on YouTube today. I recommend anybody go type in World's Fair in YouTube. (laughs) You can add New York if you want, just New York ones. But it's great. I mean, they showed every night there was fireworks um, from, I think, like, what, 8, 8 to 10 p.m.? I'm sure the neighbors loved it. But uh, <laughs> you can really place yourself there. It was one, some of the first times at 39 where the color film and photography was really first shown, and you could purchase it yourself. So there's a lot of even color video, which is really great to watch and see. But uh, you had Sin- Sinclair's Dino Land at the 64 World's Fair, where you could uh, go thank the dinosaurs for what they gave us to Sinclair for oil <laughs> they, and watch they, them. They are the, yeah. they are the oil that, they, exactly. that we are thanking like, them for. Yes. All right. You had the amazing underground home um, yes. <laughs> showing what the future could be, uh, whether you like it or not. There's rumor it might still be underground, which is... Do you think it's still there? You know, I, I like to think it is. I'm, I always show some images when I, I give my tours there of, of these women hanging out in their uh, underground living room or barbecue grill area. Of course, it's all underground. <laughs> but I like to imagine that the uh, decor is all still in place and untouched. I'm sure they pulled all that out, but I, I feel like they probably left the frame of the building. I bet the frame of the building's still still there. Maybe the magazines and the coffee table are gone, exactly. but the uh, maybe the framework is there. Exactly. I hope the women got out. That's what I thought. <laughs> at least in the photo, I'm sure. Very key. <laughs> um, you had General Electric's Progress Land that was brought to you by Walt Disney, and then you can probably well you'll be singing it for the next three weeks. But uh, Disney also paired up with Pepsi Cola and UNICEF to bring you It's a Small World. And that was the first time people got to discover and see It's a Small World, which then, you know, moved down to Florida after that because he realized, I want to do this all year. Forget this New York weather. The problem is that this was not really an officially sanctioned fair like the other one was. Right. 
So how did that play out in terms of the look of the whole place and the sort of whole general aesthetic of the 64 World How Fair? much time do you have? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, th- things changed, as I mentioned, so much so. I mean, when I look at all the different items that I collect, clocks, lamps, toasters, lighting, a lot of home goods I, I love to collect. But even fashions and styles changed so drastically during that time. And each decade really kind of had its own distinct look from Art Deco to the Machine Age to the 60s with its futuristic look. They actually call it Googie. <laughs> not um, Google, but Not Googie. Google, but Googie, which was okay. a coffee shop in Los Angeles. It mm. was very emblematic of this Jetsons-type futuristic 60s look when you think of the Jetsons. And that's what they kind of call this style. To me, it's it's interesting. It's It wasn't as cohesive. The whole fair mm-hmm. was not as cohesive. I think each designer by then was like, I'm going to be the standout architect. I'm going to make oh, my sure. own design. Mm-hmm. So, it kind of had the similar look, but not as cohesive and, and gorgeous in my mind uh, as 39 and 40. But they wanted to make more money. So they were like, let's do it. They lost a lot of money in the first fair. They had this fairground. It was still there. They even reused, reutilized some of the buildings from mm-hmm. the New York City building, which was reutilized and is now still with us today as the Queens Museum. So, you know, they re-put the fair on once more. But the look was definitely a little bit more outrageous. Um, <laughs> if you think, it's funny because there's not a ton of buildings left in the city that are that googie look. If you go to Los Angeles, you see a lot more of that. It's because they're mostly not practical in a, in a dense city, right? <laughs> right. Well, that's another thing we didn't bring up too, but all the our designs and architecture that was built for these fairs were designed and planned to only be there for two years. The fairs run mm-hmm. from a- ran from April till October, the nice time of the year here in New York. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they weren't designed to last forever. Even um, the New York State Pavilion, which is still with us and is undergoing renovation, thankfully, you know, of course, I wish they could have stayed around, but with the weather and snow and ice and all that, it's very difficult. But again, there was something about the ephemera of these fairs that also led to so much of the objects and items that I and others do collect. Mm -hmm. Um, And people bought tons of it because they didn't want to forget the fair, kind of knowing in the back of their minds that all this majesty and amazing art was going to just poof, be gone, and this will turn back into a park, as it has. Well, we're going to get more into the collection here and into the souvenirs and into those remaining artifacts which exist. A look at the souvenirs and the treasures of the World's Fair after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... 
Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So I want to talk now about not the big stuff of the World's Fair, but the small stuff, the souvenirs. Now, you set up the fact that what's so important about these souvenirs is the fact that these fairs are not around forever. They're just there for a couple of years, and most of them are torn down. So they're really just memories. And so this is perhaps an era where some people may have had cameras and may have had video cameras, but for the most part, to remember a fair is that you bought a souvenir from it, right? Yes. And I think also, you know, again, it was the Depression, so a lot of people went without. But to come to the fair, and they went nuts in creating everything they possibly could emblazoned with the Perisphere and Trilon for 39 and 40, or the Unisphere in 64, 65. Not only that, they would have, you know, whatever building you went to. You could have the electrical products building emblazoned on a, you know, small ashtray or whatever it may be. I mean, they made everything. It was upwards of 175,000 design patents were approved wow. by the New York World's Fair Corporation. It was somewhere in that in that vicinity. And I don't doubt it because, you know, having looked on eBay over the years and gone antiquing, they really created just about everything. I mean, you could get bud vases, you could get 3D glasses, um, you could get a Perisphere and Trilon planter, because mm-hmm. who doesn't need that for the next 40 years after being at the fair? <laughs> you could get a kitchen and table and chair set that you could even buy, not even just at the fair. Once you went home, they sold it in furniture stores. So, so these were more than just little trinkets. Like you could really take a substantial part of yes. the fair back to your home and make it part of your home. Yes. I mean, they ran the, the gamut from small little tiny pins to even shirt buttons. But yeah, all the way up, they had like an electrical fan that had the Perisphere and Trilon on it. They RCA made a radio that was out of this pressed wood called Sirocco wood um, that had the Perisphere and Trilon on it. And what's funny, RCA also made one for the 1939 Golden Gate exhibition that mm-hmm. you can also purchase. That existed as well. But I mean, they had ladies hats. They had trash cans. I have a 64 Unisphere <laughs> trash can. Like what? <laughs> what do you really need? You couldn't get a trash can elsewhere, but you know, I had a great photo of it. They had needle and thread kits. They had every playing cards, a home thermometer, anything you thought you needed and any taste you wanted, they had something for it. There was different days, like special days throughout the the fair that you would buy right, that, right. like a matchbook cover that said, oh, it was Celebrity Day or Judy Garland Day or what have you. <laughs> so did each of these pavilions, did they just all have gift shops or were there just collected gift shops that you could also go to? I mean, I'm just thinking of the vast amount of like just huge bags of things that people could potentially leave with all made of plastic. <laughs> well, it's funny. I still have paper, actually waxed paper bags mm-hmm. from the World's Fair that were the gift bags. And I just love humans because I guess I'm like them and they're like me, etc. But that they decided I'm going to keep this bag too. Of course. I yeah. even have a sugar packet from the 64 World's Fair <laughs> that has the Unisphere on. I love people that save the real ephemera that you're supposed sure to throw away. I'm sure someone out there attempted to save a Belgian waffle. Oh, <laughs> Somewhere in a Ziploc bag. <laughs> Some food. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was uh, little pavilions I uh, threw out that would be your gift shops. But then even, like you said, if you went to like the New Jersey pavilion, you could go there and they would have something specific to New Jersey. And then you could have art made. There was like a spirograph art that you could make at the fair. And then, that, of course, that was stamped with the World's Fair. You could get plastic dinosaurs made at 6465 World's Fair in a blow mold machine that you put your or coin in and electrically it 
went through and you watched it fill plastic with air <laughs> and pop out this this dinosaur. You got that. I even have a record from 1939 that's a family, a father and uh, a mother and their, their child, and they're recording what they did that day, and they watched it be recorded, which is pretty great, because at the time you could really only purchase records yeah. um, for the majority, so it was pretty neat to be able to customize and make your own items. Well, you have a couple on hand here. I don't want to disturb the display case with all of those wonders, but maybe you could describe like three or four of your favorites in your in your personal collection. Sure. So, you'll see there on the upper left, I have the Perisphere and Trilon lamp. It's one of my favorites, and what's funny about that is the base is all I found originally at an antique store, and instead New York World's Fair, and it was just this black wood, nice polished, you know, wood piece, but it was missing all the rest. And I guessed that at the time they probably used a white glass dome that was pretty popular at the time for many ceiling lamps. Mm-hmm. Went to a hardware store, found one, it fit perfectly, it's the exact <laughs> scale. And then the trilon next to it, I think I made that when I was around 13 years old out of artist paper and folded it oh, and made the scale wow. correct. So that's pretty much what it would have looked like. So um, it is a, when you're in an archaeological dig and you find only part of a dinosaur right. and the rest of it, you've got to piece together yourself. Yes. So that's what you've done here. It is a lamp in the sense that the sphere part is like where the light bulb is. Yeah. It's also pretty special because it, it lights up just the one side of the trilon, kind of giving it that Art Deco mystery in and of itself. And at night as well, the perisphere was actually projected upon with clouds that looked like they were moving around it. Again, this is 1939, and how they did this is pretty wow, amazing. Yeah. On special holidays, they would project different colors. They'd put a jack-o'-lantern on it um, around October at the end of the season, red, white, and blue for 4th of July. Um, so this kind of you know recalls that. But not only this type of lamp, and I'm also a lamp collector, a clock collector. So it's funny, all those things I collect were also sold at the World's Fair. You could get your desk <laughs> clock, them, yes. your alarm clock. Um, but they made like Aerolux bulbs, which are those glow bulbs you might think of. They made for many years with like flowers glowing inside of the dome. Yeah. But they made a Perisphere and Trilon version. Not only did they sell the bulb, but they sold the Sirocco wood, once again, surround that showed the Perisphere and Trilon with this glow bulb in the middle of it. Unfortunately, I don't have that piece. It went for way too much money on eBay years ago. <laughs> but if anyone has one, call into the Byward Boys and they'll let me know. Um, some other favorite items here. Uh, you've got like the little viewer, like a little film viewer where you could go home, which is kind of a really smart one. Like a, is this, it's sort of like a view master, It's like right? a view master. This one was just a single view, but you get like 50 views for this little film roll to really bring you back to everything that was at the fair, even something maybe you missed. And just basic images of the fair. So as though you had taken those pictures, except right. you could see them in this little tiny view master that you held up to your eyes. Yeah. Okay. I love up at the top there, I have the snow globe with blue snow and then an ashtray attached. Um, oh, of you course. Know, of course. <laughs> Well, there probably were lots of ashtrays. Oh, so many ashtrays, <laughs> lighters, all the smokerama. So many cigarettes, so many, so many cigarette-based souvenirs, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. I can almost smell the fair from here. Um, <laughs> but it's also funny, you may notice, briskly looking at this, but I always bring this up, that the colors of the fair um, in 39 and 40, the official colors, were this darker, nice orange and a darkish navy blue and because those were the colors of New York and also mm-hmm. the colors of from Amsterdam way back, people say, well, those are the Mets colors. I'm like, well, yes, it's the New York Mets. So they use the same colors. And then in 64, 65, they did orange and blue, but the blue kind of turned a little bit more of a turquoise look because that was the the trend in the 60s to be a little more mm-hmm. modern and Jetsons-y. I think they took some liberties there. 
that's a favorite. Oh, another favorite uh, is the salt and pepper shaker you see there that mm-hmm. is, again, the Perisphere and Trilon in its shape. But it's pretty fantastic because it's stuck together as one piece, not to itself, but to the base. And then the holes are on one side of the Perisphere and the other holes are on the other side of the Trilon. So it was a one-piece salt and pepper shaker. So you oh. could turn it one side to get your pepper. So the ones, yeah, so salt, yeah. I just turned it to the left. Exactly. And then if I wanted pepper, I just turned it to the right. Yep. Okay, it doesn't look like it holds very much, but it's very ton. practical. Exactly. No, no, practicality was not at the the top of the plan here. Oh, and I Kyle, also you're pulling out some sort of interesting. It looks like a, it looks like an old timey airline ticket or something. No, what is this? What I love about this, this is, again, people kept things that you know because of the fair and because of memories. This is what well, we'll say about four inches tall and about ten inches long. It's like a long envelope, and this is New York World's Fair 1939 Incorporated, just to be clear, and this is Scott Tissue Towels, individual (laughs) soft, absorbent, and sanitary paper towels, as you would pull out of a metal machine. But this it came in a packet? It came in a packet, but look, up at the very top, it says, contents, two paper towels, one cent. You would mail this as a postcard to your family out in the, wherever they were. Paper towel. Paper towel, because that, when you think about it, that was new. People had never seen a paper towel. So they're like, you want to see the future? I just saw the future. Wow, it's that a is true. It's a paper folded towel. Still in its original <laughs> container here. I love that. Two little pieces that of tissue. <laughs> one cent in the mail. Wow. And I, not to, I don't want to not talk about 6465. Because I brought a lot of those items as well. This is from the Chrysler Motors exhibit. This is a handheld Art Deco car 3D glasses um, that has survived the test of time. This is the red version. There's a turquoise version. They came in different colors. So they are like 3D glasses, mm-hmm. but in the shape like the t- where your eyes are or where the headlamps are. Exactly, right? yes. And it says, look through this side. That's the back side. It says, use this Polaroid TM viewer as you would a pair of eyeglasses. Oh. By the way, Kyle, before we continue, I forgot to even reflect upon your fabulous shirt that you're wearing, which is a large collared shirt that is covered with the design of the 1939-1940 World's Fair, just repeated over and over again. So yes, this shirt is a crossover collectible and one of my favorites. This is printed with, like you said, the Perisphere and Trilon in blue, and then says 1939 World's Fair, and it's repeat print throughout. But this shirt with its big collar and big cuffs, maybe you can kind of imagine the swinging 60s bands wearing shirts in this shape, <laughs> because this is actually a late 60s shirt, which is kind of funny, because I don't, it by looking by the tag on it, I don't think it's from 64, 65, and the collar is so large, I'm pretty sure it was more late 60s, early 70s. <laughs> At the time, I also collect disco shirts and shirts from this era of late 60s and 70s, um, they were really looking for any print they possibly could to wow you and to uh, outdo the next designer. So this is a World's Fair throwback shirt, you know, vintage <laughs> even then, looking well, back. Know, we like, you know, people dress in retro things now. They wear Speed Racer t-shirts or what have you. So this is just an example of that, but it's just a reflection of the World's Fair from 25, 30 years before. Right. And Kyle, that's not your only article of clothing that is World's Fair related. You're also wearing a, a gold necklace that looks pretty good with this like early 70s shirt, I should say. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, this is um, a special treat for myself that I found on eBay. It's pretty fantastic. It's You can see it's the Unisphere. Mm-hmm. So that's the 6465 World's Fair theme center, which is still with us today in Flushing, Queens. And the fantastic part about this, it's kind of see-through. You can kind of see the Unisphere. You can see the little holes around it there and the reason being when you push the bottom of the necklace uh charm you push in the base and (gasps) 
The Unifierce glows up around your neck. It lights up. That's amazing. So it's actually gold. It's a you know gold little sculpture with a tiny, tiny little light bulb mm-hmm. that you cannot replace. So I try to use it sparingly. But uh, and it takes a tiny little watch battery in the base of it, which is pretty mm-hmm. great. I actually found the original advertisement for it online as well. This was sold in a jeweler shop in Manhattan. One of my prized possessions, I have to say. Generally speaking, um, are there differences between the souvenirs you would have gotten at the 39 fair versus the 64 fair? That's a great question. Well, even here at the Reliquary, um, we started with the 3940 World's Fair, but then some of the creators of the museum here started f- seeing there was a lot of crossover or repeat collectibles from 6465. Mm-hmm. So right over there, they have the other glass case, which is most of their items. And they were trying to play a fun game where they would say, okay, he's got that ashtray. Let's find the 64 version of the ashtray and back and forth. So there were some repeated items, of course, salt and pepper shakers and, mm-hmm. you know, fobs and hats and pins and things like that. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of items repeated. The, of course, the spoon sets, you had to have your silverware sets, you could get dinner plates. Now, up at the Queen's Museum, where they have the panorama of New York City on display, when you get to the top of the ramp, don't miss it, because it's kind of easy to miss, but there's a huge collection of World's Fair memorabilia uh, on display there. This is a special piece here. This is an, uh, a frock from, it's a woman's frock, in the turquoise and orange, uh, with a huge unisphere emblazoned on both the front and the back and uh this is a great little shirt that you could purchase and wear proudly but maybe limited time because by 1967 if you were still wearing it they'd be like really (laughs) (laughs) but Um, there was something just generally speaking it's looking at these sort of these souvenirs in total people were bringing these back and they were from all areas of the country all corners of the country right and they were bringing this little part of the urban experience back with them very much and not only the urban experience but almost the future you could be the envy of your friends when you wore these glasses that i just put on these are the uh unisphere (laughs) children's glasses oh they're kind of like wacky like you know new year's eve 2023 glasses except they're of course gigantic unispheres in each 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 eyeball and of course around the unisphere are those three lines that people may not know were actually the paths of the satellites Mm -hmm. and and so they also have a very nuclear look, the atomic era. And so these look like crazy atomic globes that you're wearing on on your face. Um, but what a great way to wow your friends when you get back home. And also, <laughs> it wasn't cheap to get to the fair. So, right. you know, it was a, kind of a sense of pride. It's a, another, you asked about some of my favorite pieces at the very top there is a kind of semi-crumpled, it's flattened out at this point, but a little piece of a newspaper that I found in a friend's closet they were redoing their closet and in the back of the wall was like a mini time capsule that someone had thrown all these items mm-hmm. down in there that someday someone would find well they did it was me and it was pretty great because there was a nice little corner advertisement of greyhound buses giving you a discounted ticket from schenectady to the fair um mm. showing you the different paths and ways you could could get there so that's kind of a fun piece as well that wasn't necessarily sold but that's the thing they put newspapers out and magazines even a year or two prior to the fair opening to get people excited to say hey we we can go to new york how much will it cost and plan out your trip there's even this book called trilongs and parasites that i have it's kind of a comedy book the world's (laughs) unfair guests by olay olay wait so it's so it says trilon and parasites trilongs and parasites and i haven't read the full book but from what i've read it's kind of a, a comic 
which is pretty funny because it's from 39, but about all the people that if you lived in New York City, that your family is going to come and try to couch surf and crash and may never leave and how to uh, avoid that. It's pretty funny. Um, so they're souvenir collectors, specifically, you know, you you are one of thousands. And what what is the enduring appeal of this stuff in particular is it just that there's simply so much of it and it's it's ephemeral in a way or is there something more i think it's really great because it's talks about ephemera you can remember it, it brings people back i've had people on my tours both when i did the virtual ones during um the pandemic and then in real life but just people saying oh i remember having this item or my mm-hmm. like my grandpa had the glass knife from like the glass pavilion that he got at the world's fair so there's a romance to it there's a story to it mm-hmm. and then you know the looking ahead at all these wild items that it, it, otherwise you might not have been able to purchase elsewhere. They're also kind of fun. I mean, they're just, yeah. you, they're wearable still. A lot of them have survived. Um, you can use the ashtrays. You can use the, the lighters and, and different things like that, the watches, the clocks. So they really withstood the tests of time. And uh, there are many collectors out there. And I think people romanticize New York City. They romanticize the idea of a grand fair that is celebrating technology and robots and outer space and time capsules and things that might seem mundane today. Mm -hmm. People ask me, are there still world's fairs? And did they continue? They do. And they sort of did, but they definitely became less popular because as people could go online and just learn about, oh, that's how nuclear fusion works. Okay, neat. Or like, that's how plastic is made. Okay, cool. You sit in your bed and watch it, which is convenient, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't bring everyone around for at one place to be outside to be in new york city and have that experience to watch it firsthand there are a few remaining aspects of these two world's fairs that are still standing some of them are not standing in new york city but are still standing right there's the huge tire that was the uh, ferris wheel Mm -hmm. that's out in detroit along the highway i'm not sure which highway but i haven't seen it myself yet but they kind of rolled that one out there (laughs) they got that all the way to detroit (laughs) exactly we have as mentioned earlier we have the parachute jump that has moved out to coney island there's the amazing lamp posts from the 64 world's fair that kind of look like rubik's cubes and there was 76 i want to say or 78 different designs for each lamppost top that were different configurations of these cubes and different colors that kind of let you know which zone you were in. Both fairs were broken up into different zones from Mm -hmm. food to transportation. So those lampposts um, after the fair were sold off to many different places. Um, One that I actually did get to go see, which I'm glad I did because it's basically no longer with us, but was Penn Hills Resort out in the Poconos. Mm -hmm. And that was built in around 67, 66, 67. And it was very much one of those like heart-shaped tub, very mod 60s motel, hotel, not even a motel, hotel, (laughs) um, but a full resort. And the whole parking lot was filled with these lampposts. And they were still there only a number of years ago when I went. And I heard that some collectors, speaking of many collectors out there, Mm -hmm. purchased them for their yard and have uh, been renovating those. They didn't hold up so well over 50 60 years now because they were plexiglass and the color kind of faded but it was had to be pretty cool to see those if you'd been at the fair to say hey there's that lamppost again um that was a piece uh the benches so many benches from the world's fair not only the 39 and 40 which is indicative because you can see the loop it's a wrought iron circle Mm -hmm. on the ends that was from the 39 fair there's a few of those sprinkled about i saw some the other day downtown um by city hall i think it was and then in 64, 65, they had the more Googie Jetsons designed. <laughs> they, the legs kind of look like little, almost like angled, curved 
rocket designs almost, but those were sprinkled throughout New York City. There's some in Astoria. They're all over the place because they didn't need them all to stay in the fear grounds. They were everywhere during the fair. They kept a few there for the park, but they didn't need all of them. Um, And then there's the New York City building, as mentioned, from 3940 is still with us, and that's now the Queen's Museum. And then, of course, there's the New York State Pavilion, which is perhaps the most notable and unusual thing on the site. They, it's been used in, in many different films and music videos. It was in Men in Black. It's the towers, like, digitally. Mm-hmm. They made them fall down. They're still with us. But it was a very interestingly designed building by Philip Johnson, the famous architect. But it was a, a great pavilion, and it had a tent of tomorrow, it was called, where the whole ceiling was, again, this plexiglass, kind of stained glass canopy. And then they would do presentations inside and things like that. And then the towers, you could go up and get a 360 view of the whole fairgrounds and even see the city in the distance. There was also like a VIP landing area. And there was also a snack zone where you could get food and items uh, on another one of the platforms. So they're still with us. It's received a bunch of money to shore it up. And they've been returning the blue glass lamps and light bulbs, I've noticed, um, back to the towers. Now, you are a Bowery Boys Walks tour guide for the World's Fair for Flushing Meadows, Corona Park. Give me a sort of overview of what you do on the on the tours. Yeah, so they've been so much fun to do, and I never tire of, of going out there. It's always a, a fun day. I've done it in the rain. I've done it in the snow mm-hmm. and sun. But we have everyone meet up at the entrance ramp, one of the main entrances to the fair that's still with us. And we usually meet around noon on a Saturday, mm-hmm. and it goes usually about an hour and 45 probably two hours generally. And we do a general path through the the remnants of the fairgrounds. And I combine both the 3940 and 6465 fair into one. And I have with me my little pamphlet, my maps and photos. So I like to show people, bring them back to show just how densely built the area was, to show the different buildings and locations. I'd love to point out the flagpoles that are over by the Lagoon of Nations. <laughs> um, that's the reflecting pool that's still with us. But there's these big, huge, beautiful eagle sculpture sculptors or sculptures mm-hmm. um, that was created by a sculptor in 3940 that uh, sit atop these flagpoles that are very 1930s. Um, they almost look German. They're not, but they do look uh, a little imposing. But it, like, it's fun to point out things like that. And then to hear people's stories. I mean, there, uh, one gentleman told me how he poured the floors for the Kodak Pavilion, and I think worked on a few others, including one of the, uh, I think the New England ship that was there. But, you know, the money from the fair, he was able to buy his wife their engagement ring and like put money towards their first home. And it's really nice to see the impact that this fair had on New Yorkers and people far flung from there and different memories. And it's been fun. I've been doing it, wow, about five years now. And I even can do virtual tours. I learned how to do that during uh, COVID. So I had to, you know, think on my feet, but it's it's fun because then we got even more people and people could then at the end show their items and um, souvenirs that they've kept or inherited Uh or got firsthand from the fair. So it's really fun and interactive. And it points out a part of New York City that I think a lot of people don't realize happened here or that you can even still go visit today. Uh Well, thank you for inviting me here to the city reliquary surrounded by all these gorgeous things to have this lovely conversation about the world's fair with you in sight of your own collection here, which everyone should come to the city reliquary and check out. And of course, everyone head on down and uh, yeah, come to dance, Julius. It's, come it's, Julius. Yeah. it's the first Saturday of every month after dark party. You can follow retro show tell on Instagram. I'm going to be celebrating more of my objects and items. 
and then come on my Bowery Boys tours, or come on all of the Bowery Boys tours, really. But uh, yeah, the World's Fair one has, has been a hit, and Under the High Line, and some new ones I hope to create in the next year. Kyle, thank <laughs> you for joining me on the Bowery Boys. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor, and such an honor to be here, and, and thank you to the City Reliquary. I want to thank the City Reliquary for letting us record this interview there. It was just an absolutely perfect atmospheric place for such a discussion. Of course, you know, Kyle's collection is there. And I want to thank Kyle for joining me and opening and revealing a whole different side of the World's Fair that I had never really considered before. City Reliquary is open on the weekends. It's in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Visit their website for information on opening hours and how you can take a gander at Kyle's collections. Now, you can take a look at some of my pictures that I took during the interview with Kyle and, of course, you know some of these artifacts and that crazy shirt that he was wearing. You can check those out on our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, and on our Instagram page, BoweryBoysNYC. I'd also like to turn your attention to another Bowery Boys episode from several years ago called Ruins of the World's Fair. That's episode 173, featuring an interview with filmmaker Matthew Silva about his film on the New York State Pavilion, a building which Kyle and I spoke about here on the show. That film is called Modern Ruin a World's Fair pavilion, and is partially responsible today for the structure's rehabilitation. So that's a fun show to revisit now, you know, since the building seems to be doing much better. It's a more hopeful show. We have had so many new signups on Patreon this past week, and I, I just want to thank you. I'm just so overwhelmed. And thank you to all of you, but especially the brand new members. If you liked my conversation with Kyle, you are all in luck because we actually stuck around the city reliquary for another hour and recorded an entirely new show just for you, patrons, as part of our new Patreon-only show called Side Streets. You'll hear more about Kyle's other collection, maybe even arguably his greater collection, okay? I'm going to leave that with you. You're going to have to listen to find out what that collection is, but it is extraordinary. You can tune into that and much, much more Patreon-exclusive audio at patreon.com slash Boys. A special shout-out to new patrons Patricia W. from Otswego County, JDK from Miami Beach, and additional patrons Robert S., Beth S., Elizabeth M., Mildred S., Bob B., Patty G., and Saya. Well, I'll be back in two weeks, and Tom will be here, and we have an exciting new show in store. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.